Should we report what Matt Stoko's wife is doing right now? Yeah. Um, Matt, Matt Sto Matthew Stoko's wife, uh, can you tell us what you're doing in Larchmont Village right now at an outdoor area? I'm actually pouring a miniature bottle of vodka into a um, bottle of lime seltzer to recover from my day. <laughs> to circumvent the licensing laws of this place, yeah. <laughs> Come here, and you are covered in lipstick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, what about your day that um, is has stressed you out in Los Angeles? Oh, the traffic. Actually, it's been a really good day. We've been to um, the La Brea Tar Pits, and, and we went to LACMA. And, uh, yeah, it was beautiful. And then um, then we went to the Grove. Yeah, and that's <laughs> Yeah, well, I lost my enthusiasm for life, you know, but uh, <laughs> I've got it back now, <laughs> once we left. <laughs> and now so, with you. Yeah, yeah, and what, what I like to do is interview wives at the beginning of the show. So, wives first, and then we go to the author, whatever, husband. So, um, hey, this is Matthew Stoko, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Now, pretend like you liked the, the interview. Oh. Didn't sound like that. Hey, <laughs> this is Matthew Stokoe, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Like That's that? a little better, yeah. Oh, am I really? Do no, I sound really not. bad? <laughs> no, you're fine. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. Wives first, and then we go to the author, whatever, husband. So, um, so uh, how, how have you been traveling all over the states? And this is, is this your second time in the states? Um, second time to America, really, but we've never been to California before. And your thoughts on California? Be brutally honest, because most of my listeners hate California. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful state. Beautiful. I mean, the Mammoth Lakes area and Tahoe and Yosemite, San Francisco is beautiful. Lone Pine. Yeah, we drove all down like the east side of the Sierras. We kind of mucked up our plan, and we went up to San Fran, then across, and then we just went down the eastern side. Spectacular, absolutely spectacular. So, which one's better, San Francisco or LA? San Francisco. Well, <laughs> I said LA's a shithole. <laughs> Look. I said we got a we got a one-sided view of it because we you know we're not seeing the we hadn't seen some of the better parts of it. Okay. You went to La Brea Tar Pits. What are you complaining no, no, about? No, no, uh, no, no. The, all the things we've gone out to see have been fantastic. Just where we're staying is it's a little bit of a downer for Elizabeth because she wanted somewhere nicer. But I tell you, for livable cities and uh, sort of stuff that's analogous to Sydney where I live now, is um, San Francisco is very much the same. You know, it's concentrated. It's on a harbour. It's um, it's not like big freeways like LA is. I mean, I didn't actually realize how daunting the traffic was going to be here. You know, I mean, and in Sydney we drive a lot, and there's you know there's freeways there, but they're not like here, and the drivers are not like here. I nearly had a heart attack <laughs> on the freeways. Yeah. Oh. Why is that? Um, well, especially on the way into San Francisco, a truck jackknifed oh, and yeah. um, squashed, a car. squashed a car against the concrete barrier, and no one seems to indicate all care about speed limits the tailgate it was you know they just changed lanes without indicating yeah now the lane changes in LA or San Francisco did they not indicate as much I think it was about about the same actually maybe LA is a bit worse well yeah, we I don't know how much driving we did in San Francisco we parked a car and went on just walked yeah. around 
But coming from Palm Springs to LA on the 10 and the 101, jeepers. Yeah. <laughs> I was glad to take the car back. <laughs> All right, now the important question before we actually get to the show is, um, what's it like to be married to a writer? Look, it's great. You know, because when he's writing, then I get to do what I want to do, like watch my TV shows. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, and he's, he's kind of doing his thing. Sometimes, you know, I kind of get a bit lonely and say, you know, can you come and play with me? But, um, but, but, but would it be fair to say, Elizabeth, that it took you like 20 fucking years to get to this point? <laughs> I'm used to it true? now. I uh, probably did take me a little while yeah. to, to get used to him what, writing. What were the early adjustments that were kind of frustrating? That I would spend the evenings on my own, yeah. <laughs> you know, while he was writing and stuff. But um, but now, you know, I'm used to it. And, yeah. you know, now I'm saying, go and, go and write. Yeah. Go and write. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. I got, I've got stuff to do. <laughs> That's the wife, and that is the wife portion of the show. Um, okay, I gotta remember because I, I, you had High Life, Cows, yeah, Empty Mile, Colony Horse, and I should have bought you. I'll get one to you, but um, is that a new one? Um, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I'm, last one. So I'm bummed because all of my books by you are in San Francisco. I have like half my books there, half my books, and I was I was looking through my shelves. I'm like. Crap, I don't have anything for him to sign. Well, when I first uh, contacted you through Cherry Bleeds, right? That was around uh, Cows and then High Lifetime. And then I think since that period, I mean, it's not prolific, but, you know, I've had the M2 Mile and um, Colony of Fours. And, yeah, I was so totally going to bring you a copy today, but I will post you a copy because it's um, it's kind of the move on from, it's another Hollywood one, another, another Californian one. And um, kind of sits in between Empty Mile and um, High Life. So. All right, and then what I do now is I just I have to do the announcement of the show. So that was all the that was the they cold open, I guess is what we'll call it. Right. So yeah. <clears throat> all right. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host Tony Duchesne. Today on the show we have Matthew Stoko, the author of Cows High Life, and you just told me the other two books. You need to it, and announce them just like I do, so it doesn't seem like I don't know what I'm doing. All right, uh, and Empty Mile and Colony Falls, and uh, it didn't make me sound like I might be an Australian at all. <laughs> That's my best American accent. Come on, <laughs> really? Oh, can you do better than that? I, um, how do you get to Larchmont Village? Say that in your best American accent. I don't know. Or something else. Say, buddy, how do you get to lunch? <laughs> I don't know. When I try and put it on, because a guy asked me to record some stuff of my book for him, and uh, so he could use it on an audio track, uh, you know, behind some electronic music. And I sound like such a dick, you know. I, I had to put on this faux American accent because it was in America, and, and then I thought that sounds really stupid. And a friend of mine once said, you know, writers are stupid. You should never read your own work. Hire an actor to do it because you know, unless you're a real good reader, then you're going to sound like a dick. Yeah. Nah. So that's the audio book. Um, uh, what do you call the, the for your for your audio book? That is the suggestion for authors. That's if, if you do an audio book. Yeah, yeah. I haven't done one, but the suggestion is get an uh, an actor. You know, because I mean, writers don't. They're not. You know. I mean, you're different. You're flamboyant. You're a flamboyant writer, maybe. I'm the opposite end of the spectrum. And um, yeah, sitting in front, because I had to do an interview yesterday and the guy goes, okay, you know, can you do a, like, a tagline for this? You know, hey, it's Matthew Stokoe in there. I'm sitting in front of the camera and it was like, oh, uh, it's a YouTube thing, it wasn't a big deal, but um, yeah. it was great to do. And, um, and I was like, oh, 
frozen. I had like, you know, four words to say and I'm like, oh, I've forgotten what to say it. Are you off doing? Bye. No, I'm um, just going inside to see if what we can find for a right. And um, so, but I, I got it done in the end, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and you spoke of Cherry Bleeds. It's so awesome to meet you because I think I, we started corresponding with your, was High Life your first book? That was the one that we, that was uh, the book. oh, because it, it was Cal. Ten years, I think it was 10 years ago. Easily 10. Yeah, 20, 20 years ago. Maybe, or 18. I think, I know I was living in New Zealand at the time. And I've been out of New Zealand for nine years, and it was good few years before I left. So I think you're looking about 12, 12, 15 years, definitely. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got a divorce in, in that time, and yeah. then a movie made. So like time all just cut. There's this little parallel universe you have in your mind when all like really great and bad shit goes on all at once. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had a lot happen, right? The like peaks and troughs. Yeah, you know, you can call it that. Mine was just more undulating along in New Zealand, you know, where nothing ever happens, and then and I was like, what's this? site cherry bleeds you know and you have some great writers on there I, I still remember that guy he used to write about drug addicts in new york city and he would go he would write probably like a mexican would say it and he would spell it like that you know that was great and it was just good it was just like we're a connection into some like really cool american writing from being on the other side of the world it was it was, it was pretty important in the end you know like for me to just have that access for a bit yeah yeah, because I didn't really know what was happening. I just was putting it out. So yeah. I, you know, I just thought, oh, great, here comes more of my crap writing and other, uh, more stuff no one's going to care about that I spend 20 hours a week on. Yeah, but I think it's important for a lot of the people that you published on that site, you know. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like it, and uh, yeah, whatever. Anyway, you know, you did it. It was it was an awesome thing to do, I think. You know, I still got a sticker of yours at home. Oh, was a cherry bleed sticker. Oh, no way. Yeah, you sent me some. Oh, yes, you, you actually gave me your address. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I probably, scared about uh, No, not at all. But I tell you what, I was scared about was when I um, when uh, when my publisher fucked up in with cows in England and wasn't paying me any money, and I was like, what the fuck can I do? Oh, I know. I'll just give it to people free. I did it through your site. You know. Uh, yeah, remember that? I made a PDF. A, a version of cows available through your site just on like the agreement that hey nobody republishes it nobody sends it on and then you made it you you let people download it from your site so that was pretty cool oh i i vaguely remember that yeah that's fun so we kind of stuck it to the man yeah yeah although i think it's bit me in the ass a little bit because now you know the book's pirated all over the place but <laughs> I had these motherfuckers in um, where was it? Uh, Hungary, and I'm 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 I was staying in a small town in Australia, just browsing, and I said, oh, we're gonna we're gonna have this book club in this um, bookstore, and um, uh, it, we're doing Stoker's Cows right uh, uh, next week. Oh, and here's a free download of it. <laughs> Can you believe that? I rang the dude in the bookstore in Hungary, and I'm like. Uh, is this how you treat authors? You know, you, you like piss away their work. And he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. These these are amateurs. They just come and use our space. And he told them all off and they took it all down. And oh, <laughs> so, but, you know, that's the sort of thing you let yourself in for if you yeah. try and make something. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, um, so, okay, let, let's go back to, because you lived in Los Angeles for a while. And, uh, I visited. Oh, you visited? <laughs> visited Los Angeles in the... In the uh, mid '90s, early to mid '90s. Yeah. And the, um, that was the setting for one of the first books, right? That was the setting for High Life. Yeah. And it's also the setting for my last book, Colony Falls. Yeah. And, and what's it like writing about Los Angeles and, um, coming in? And did you kind of like do some research on the um, on the vibe and the? 
Uh, I had spent like a long time wanting to come to LA the, before the first time I came, right? Before I came in the uh, 90s. And I did tons of reading around the film industry and the moguls and the studios and the development and even technical processes. I don't really care too much about actors, or the, but I think the lives that they had in the 20s, 30s and 40s were pretty cool. But um, <clears throat> so I had this whole edifice built within, you know, in my psyche kind of thing. And, and when I got here the first time, it was like, oh, fuck, it's exactly like I pictured it. It's incredible. And you know, I just you hear conversations. I remember sitting at the traffic lights, and two guys pulled up on, on you know, Japanese superbikes, and they were obviously lawyers talking about some film star and some diaries and shit. And then they zoomed off, and like, wow, what did they say? And so it was, you know, it was everything I thought it would be. And so even though I wasn't here that long, I kind of just sucked everything in. And then when I ba went back to London, I had this notion of writing a slick book like um, I'd just seen Basic Instinct. And I wanted to write something like that, you know, because Chaos had been so hard to publish and it had taken like five years to publish after I, after I finished it. I thought, oh, well, I've got to try a different tack. So I started trying to do something like that obviously LA based and um, didn't kind of work out you know it just became high life you know there's still too much darkness in there so um, yeah that's, that was high life my, my, my Hollywood love letter yeah 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 and I still didn't get over it because I still wanted to do that um, again you know with with Colony and in fact even Empty Mile the third book was set in Northern California so but the, see the problem is <clears throat> When you're in Australia and it's so far away, the Australians only want to publish Australians or famous Americans. But if you write, um, if you write a book that's set in America and you are kind of nominally an Australian, they don't want to know. You know, they want like, oh, this sheep shearer fell in love with a nun who looked after orphaned little Aboriginal people, and you know, they don't want American stories. Oh, weird. That's that's so interesting. It's really, yeah, I had a like a lot of quite a lot of discussions with the head of um, Penguin Random House. There is it Penguin or Random that are, or is it Penguin? Anyway, basically the biggest biggest uh, publishing company in the world now, I think. And um, a, a very nice lady over there was the head of it, but she was like, you know, yeah, you gotta write something set in Australia. And I was like, yeah, but look at your crime list. It's all by Americans. It's all by these old James Patterson people. And it's like, what the fuck are you publishing? What are you? But no, they couldn't get it. They couldn't do it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But an interesting story. I was introduced to her, Nikki Krista, very nice lady, and um, by a guy called Joe McGuinness. Oh yeah. Uh, you know him? Yeah. Hey, he's been on Drake's Hotel. <laughs> No. Oh, he's dead now, though. What? Yeah, yeah. Joe. Oh, no, Joe McGinnis Jr. I'm sorry. I'm not. Oh, Joe McGinnis Jr. Right. Yeah, yeah. He gave me a heart attack. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Well, no, because um, Joe Senior came over for a writers' festival a few years ago, and he'd read Empty Mile, and he loved it, and he was published by oh, fuck. I hope it's Random House. I'm not. I can't forget. Um, and he he told. Nikki, you go see this guy, he's living in your country, and he's written this book, and it's fucking great, and you should publish this guy. And, of course, they weren't going to do that. But um, <coughs> I, it gave me an introduction, and that gave me some interesting conversations with her. But, and it was really cool, because I didn't actually know who Joe was at that point. And he's like, oh, you know, and I looked him up, and he goes, oh, yeah, read, you know, he wrote uh, the, the thing about Nixon's campaign. But then, he goes, then I realized, I'm looking at uh, Brady Snellis' Lesson Zero, dedicated to Joe McGuinness, because Joe McGuinness was his teacher at Benetton or whatever. Yeah, trivia for you. I love it. Yeah. The, um, what got you started? To, when did you know you were a writer? 
Uh, well, I kind of wa- I read a lot as a kid. You know, as a kid, it was just read and read and yeah. read. And then I read. What, what part of Australia was this? In? Uh, Sydney. Okay. So I was born in England, and then we immigrated to Australia when I was about six, and I stayed in Australia till I was about nineteen. Then I went to the UK. Do you, do you have like a dual citizenship situation then? Oh, I actually have a triple citizenship. Really? Yeah, yeah, I have New Zealand, Australia, and and British. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you got three ways out. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, when global warming really bites, New Zealand will be the place to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just on the outside of this some sort of zone where everything's going to get really bad. But you know, but no, I um, I kind of, I guess I just sort of wanted to do it, but I didn't know how to do it. You know, and um, I, I, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, I bought this typewriter when I was about 20, 21, 22, and had this notion sitting in my bed sit in London that I would write a novel. And I wrote one page and then gave up because I had no fucking clue. Um, I went to university a little bit later in life, like about 26, wrote all those essays for my degree, and then came out of that going, oh, okay, now I understand how to do this shit. Um, even though it was it was an economics thing, not a um, English at all. <clears throat> and um, did a half a screenwriting course. I did one term, bailed on it, didn't go back. Wrote a couple of screenplays, then sat down and thought, right, okay, sick of these screenplays and all the fucking rules, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, I know all too well. <laughs> you would, yeah, you would. Yeah, but what happens on page, you know? It's, what's got to happen on page 25 or whatever? And um, so I thought, okay, I'll sit down and I'll write a book, and it's just going to be only what I want to write. And I don't give a shit if it never gets published. I mean, that was super naive because as soon as I finished it, of course I wanted it published, right? As every writer does. It's an egotistic kind of thing in a way. Introverted egotism is what writing is. Well, you bring up a good point because you wrote for yourself. That's That seems to be what you, yeah. where you came from. Yeah, for Cows is very much. You know, I, I just, I, I had this real... Thing about being an honourable writer in those days, you know, and honourable was not to count out any of this stuff. And I, th- I saw all these books around. And I'm saying, you know, what, they don't describe sex properly or violence properly. When you kill somebody, it's a really horrible thing. You know, it's not a, a shoot. And wow, that was great. It's, it's a disgusting thing. And so I was a little bit uh, angry, young man, at that point. And, um, you know. Yeah, and I, I had cows. I didn't plot. I didn't, you know, even have an idea for it. I didn't even have the idea of cows, the cows, when I sat down to write it. I just went, hmm, here's this kid, mm, fucked up, and it was all my experiences about living through sort of Thatcher's Britain and the poverty and all the rest of it, because I was there like 15 years, and um, and so yeah, it just sort of came out day to day. Just wrote that day to day. And and the day to day is what's important because if you don't keep on it, that's when the novel loses itself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Somebody asked me that. Oh, you know, do you write every day? Well, when I'm writing, yeah, you've got to kind of write every day. You lose that flow, you know. It's it's sort of, I don't know, that that river of stuff that runs from your subconscious out through the conscious, you know. I, I've told people, I'm like, if I don't write every day, I turn into, like, a really irritable person. I, so I write in order so people can deal with me. <laughs> well, I would agree with you there because I uh, kind of decided I would stop writing for, like, a few years after I finished Colony of Whores, right, and concentrate on trying to earn a living and shit like that. And I think it was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, you know, that crap. And um turned out to be a mistake because, you know, you get depressed and you don't see any hope, you know. When you're writing, you, you know, you know there's light this hope well if you're a writer when you're writing this hope because you know who knows what can happen you finish it as long as you finish it you know 
it's a, it's a thing. And here we are, two big time famous authors in uh, in L.A. Yeah, look at this, sitting outside a wine and cheese shop with all these crazy L.A. people around us. It's great. It's great. And it's so great to finally get to meet you. It's like I've known you since book one, and then but it, it's it's weird the the world. Yeah. Isn't it weird the sort of relationship you have? Because when you you kind of know somebody like through that, you know social media or websites and a bit of correspondence, emails and stuff like that, and you kind of follow like the little highlights of their life or at least what's put out there. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's the cool part of it. Sometimes I wish I would just blow up Twitter and uh, the internet, and everything might come back to normal. <laughs> Takes us back to 76. Pay phones. Yeah, exactly. Got to, want to see a movie? Go to a cinema. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. A theater. Uh, you know, but um, now we just have everything. And it's great. And it's particularly good when you're a writer and you want to go, wow, I wonder what that street actually looks like. Yeah. Google Street View. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Exactly. You know. Yeah. yeah what, what exactly is that address? I've done research on places where I've lived where I wanted to find out the exact address and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, and I, I also did it when you know, I was getting accommodation in LA. I would do a little bit of the street view, like, you know, well, what's this really yeah. like around here? You know, and, but it, it's very good when you live so far away, you know, unless I do, to um, look at other parts of the world. Yeah. When's the last time you've been in the States? Um, well, in the in technical states, we went to Hawaii a couple of years ago, and then I was in Denver before that, a few years before that, and then it was LA before that. So, I have not been here anywhere near as much as I wanted to be. Yeah. You know, definitely, and in California particularly, because yeah. you know, it was where my interests lay. And it's such a trek. I mean, I haven't been. To, I want to go to Australia one day, yeah. but that flight kind of scares me. Uh, it is. It's. It's. It's bad, but it's. It, what was it? We did, I think it's about a three hour leg to Auckland and then a 13 hour leg to LA. So that's, you know, talking about 17 hours. It's not as bad as going to the UK from Australia, which can be 23 hours, wow. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's tough, but it's survivable, you know, right. it's survivable. And uh, I have to say, I love Sydney. I really do. It's a fantastic city. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, you, you made comparison to Sydney and San Francisco. I've heard, I've heard that as well, because there's Brisbane, Brisbane, yes. which is Brisbane. <laughs> Brisbane. Right. We have we have Brisbane in um, San Francisco. There's oh. a suburb called Brisbane. Oh, seriously? Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they call it Brisbane, but it's Brisbane when I talk to the Aussies. Which, by the way, I mean, I could mistake you for you know Mick Harvey from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Yeah. Yeah. I could mistake you for him almost. Oh, seriously? I guess that's not a bad thing. No, yeah. <laughs> it's the younger, healthier version of him. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, I don't know if he was the one that was comparing uh, L.A. Um, I, look, I think it's a, it's a pretty straightforward comparison. You know, yeah. they're both harbor cities. Yeah. They're both reasonably concentrated. They both had bridges, which are important to them. So San Francisco is just an awful lot bigger, you know, and um, but but Sydney is just very good about it. this. The access to the harbor is fantastic. We have a whole ferry system, you know, and the harbor goes for a long, long way into the, the city. Um, so a lot of, I mean, yeah, you have to be reasonably well off to actually live at the edge of the harbor, right? But you, there are a lot of areas that, that have at least access or a view of the harbor, so it's right. good. Yeah. So you've been driving around America for about a month almost? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are some of the high, the lows and the highs of that? Uh, well, you know, I one of the things like when you live outside the U.S. and 
Yeah, it's the food, and you hear about all the food that we don't have, and the diners that we don't have. Well, I'm disabused, because diner food is shit. Yeah, it is. Right, it's like every, uh, I, I, I ate about four different places, and I was nauseous at the end of each meal, you know. Um, however, amazing places to go sit. You know, I went to Kansas on North Fairfax, and, and just looking at it was, like, phenomenal. We don't have anything that, of that sort of size, really. Oh, right, right. Yeah. But... Um, so, you know, it was good to try that food and get rid of it. I have also, have to say, had some fantastic food here too, though. Yeah. Um, what else have I loved? I love the scenery. That's just spectacular. I mean, the, the stuff in the Sierras, <clears throat> just unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. The scale. And I was saying to my wife, where I, it, I, I can understand kind of how the American psyche is formed. I mean... From outside America, we tend to think, oh, you guys think America is the entire world. You know, that's, that's an easy impression to get, just talking to run-the-mill Americans. And, and, and you can kind of get a little bit put off by that. But being here and traveling through such a lot of the, the state, I see how it can easily happen. Because you're surrounded by such might and grandeur. You know, that just on your daily basis. I mean, what, only forty percent of you have passports or something. You know, you don't even consider leaving the country. So, um, because it's so big and so good, you got such a variety of places you can go. So, yeah, it's it, it's cool to see that. You know, it, it's, it's educational. That's great because um, I'm just depressed about it, and I have my passport. I just want to get it stamped and get the hell out often. <laughs> Where would you go though? <laughs> right, exactly. I haven't I haven't been out of the country in a while. Man, I'd love to visit Oz though because I just that just feels like so otherworldly yet so um, familiar. I don't know if that's a, so. It's, yeah, look, it's it's. It, it's as technologized as here. It's got, you know, you don't lack for anything. It's not like you're going somewhere where you don't have hot water or electricity right. or anything. You've got everything you've got here. You just got a little bit less of it. You know what I mean? And 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 it, we've progressively become more and more Americanized. I mean, we just yeah. have. And Sydney's changed a lot in 20 years, the same as LA's changed a lot. And yeah. we have a, you know, tons of chain stores which I hate. And oh, right. you know, <clears throat> and, and everything's got much more glitzier and glamier. And they build like a billion apartment blocks and uh, all through the city. Um, ooh, got lost. Where was it going? I have no idea. <laughs> the, the, the salami sandwich is getting in my brain, man. That's right. <laughs> the prosciutto's getting in mine. <laughs> Yep. Processed meat in Los Angeles, California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't somebody going to like put up billboards saying um, salami is as bad for your health as, as smoking in America huh. like a while ago? And yeah. they said, you know, dude, you can't do that. There's, there's too many pork farms. <laughs> well, and at the same time, that's just, I, I, would, I like to be contrarian, so I'd just wrap a salami around a cigarette and just smoke it. Smoke, smoking salami. <laughs> this is the smoothest smoking salami I've ever had. So we got Halloween coming up, and mm. so that you know that's a big thing from what I'm understanding in Los Angeles. And they have on Hollywood Boulevard, thousand dollar fine per for for possessing a silly string can between the hours of 12 a.m. to 1 p.m. on November 1st. Wow. Yeah. That it, well. Halloween's not a big deal in Australia. It's becoming it's more, you know, as the Americanization continues in Australia. Um, it's becoming more sort of done in in, okay. in, in the big cities. Yeah. But like when I was a kid, no, Halloween was nothing. And then for a long, long time, it was nothing. So, yeah. But it's a huge deal here. I mean, we're yeah. just living down, at the moment, we're just staying down the 
the road from where you know they're going to block off Santa Monica Boulevard and right. um, have that huge thing. So I'd probably go and check it out a bit. But um, yeah, no, kids are going wild over here for it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, so I couldn't like even yes. be any near any of that stuff. So I have a very different relationship with it, where it doesn't mean much to me. Yeah, that's weird. Are you the guys who didn't do Christmas presents too? Oh yeah, none of that. Oh, I have a friend in New Zealand, and he grew up like he, that's exactly how he grew up, and yeah. it's still, you know, he still doesn't seem to give a shit about the Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe if I had kids, I would, but yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, that's a strange upbringing. <laughs> oh yeah, I wrote a book about it. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, God. Are you doing another one? Are you doing anything else? Oh, yeah, yeah. I got two other projects I'm working on furiously, furiously right now. But um, yeah, but, but this is about you. Okay. Yeah, sure, I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. No, there's one day because I know I'm, there's going to be a gap in the schedule because I put these out on Wednesdays. So I will interview myself in a corner of a bar and just uh, have people look at me weird. <laughs> So. <laughs> great. I, I'm hoping for that. And how do you feel about that? Well, I feel really great about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be successful. You bet. Yeah, yeah. Damn, you're good looking. Oh, so are you. <laughs> exactly. Come on. Yeah. And then, um, oh, I, I lost my thought because I was posing for your wife, yeah. taking photos of us. <laughs> now she, she's moved on to dogs now, so that's okay. Yeah. 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 I, lo I love the concept of gap year in Australia. That just makes so much sense to me on so many levels that we don't have here. A gap year is not universal. You guys don't do that. No. Oh, probably they want good workers to go straight to work and don't don't learn anything about other cultures because we're the best. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was going to say yeah. You, and but also it's a, it's not only imposed. It's now within all the kids that grow up you know like all the kids now that grow up is like i gotta get a, a billion dollar app i gotta do this i haven't made a million bucks by the time i'm 25. no in, in america but also in australia we got that happening in australia too you know we got 22 year old kids like renting offices and they, they there's a story that two guys in melbourne went and rented this expensive office place and they were like we didn't really know what we were going to do and then the Jason office came up and we rented that too because we figured if we had to pay out so much money we'd figure out how to earn this money and they did and they went off and started developing apps and you know got super successful and rich and rich blah 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 god bless them huh yeah but it's it's kind of when I grew up we did shit yeah you know you just do stuff and and you didn't I never ever thought about you know making money or, or, or a profession. I mean, that I'm, I fucking wish I had, you know. But um, <laughs> it wasn't the same. But the kids now, instead of growing up wanting to be rock and roll stars or writers or, you know, they want to be tech millionaires. And it's like, oh, that's so bad, I think, anyway. But they must think it's so fantastic. And it probably is. <laughs> you know, if I didn't flounder in my 20s, I wouldn't be the healthy person I am now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Come on. Jesus. <laughs> Scraping by. <laughs> but you know what? In the end, it's like, I look at the people that were my age and young and just going after the money. And then I look at them now and they're just like, oh, yeah, well, they have a lot of money, but they're not that interesting. That's it. Ah, uh, you'd, you'd rather be interesting than rich? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
not sure about that. Really? <laughs> oh, no, I mean, yeah. Like, my, my idea of paradise would just be an, an enormous fucking house with a great big wall around it out in the country where nobody could ever come near me, you know? I mean, I wouldn't have to be interesting. <laughs> as long as I'm... <laughs> well, don't get me wrong. I'm really open to a lot of money. I, it's, it's not about that. And it's not about people who have a lot of money. It's just I saw the people who pursued it in this weird way where they just wanted the money and they didn't care how they got it. Those are the ones that I just feel sorry for because I feel like they lost... Maybe if they were totally interested in technology, then go yeah. for it. But yeah. they, they were just interested in the money, you know. Well, that's uh, that interesting. Uh, one thing that really interested me, the arc, I mean, stop me if this is too digressional, but um, <coughs> was the guy who played guitar for E-Pop. What was his name? James? James? Steve Jones? No, that's the Sex Pistols. James Williamson? No? I don't know. Shit, sorry, James, if you ever hear this. But he was the guitarist for E-Pop, right, in the Stooges. Well, after they'd been through, you know, going to the UK and getting all fucked up and all the rest of it, this guy went off, got interested in computers, and became, like, a really high-up dude in Sony. I think it was Sony. And, and, and works there to this day, you know? That's amazing. As long as they're doing it for the love. That's, that yeah, seems well, to be the important part of it. Yeah, I think from the little bit I read, he seemed genuinely interested. You know, he was, that was in the, the point when personal computers first came out. And, and he was obviously a smart guy, like, yeah. a, you know, smart dude. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we got um, so uh, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. He played on two of Iggy Pop's records. So then he's a big figure in L.A. He does, does a radio show called oh, Jonesy Jukebox. Jones. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, totally. I remember when I was in England, I, I saw that those two, the two less famous Sex Pistols walking along the street. I was like, oh, wow, you know, it's Steve James, Jones and the drummer, or, or the drummer and the guitarist, or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah whatever they were. Yeah. Was it Paul Cook? Is that who yeah, yeah. Was it Steve Cook and Paul Jones? Yeah. Oh fuck. No, no, no. They're playing tonight at the Roxy. I just found out with Billy Idol singing. I have no idea what's going on. I just found out. It's completely. All the tickets are gone. But that that is amazing. I don't. I don't mind meeting my heroes and them being. Um. I. I like even with Walter Mosley. I, you know what, it's cool. I'm glad he had a bad day, and I met him on a bad day, because we're all humans. I'm, I'm not worried about that. Well, I haven't met too many other writers. I went to a couple of James Elroy readings when he was in London about, uh, you know, fuck, 20 years ago. He's a super character, I know. Oh, have you really? Fuck. But, you know... He, he like flicks the switch. It's the same fucking thing all the time. And um, uh, yeah, what he does is he turns it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I loved his. Uh, I didn't like the book about his, you know, love life or whatever it was. But um, I liked what he said in it that he learned to speak at AA meetings, and that's where he got the gift of the gab. He used to go to AA meetings when he was really young, right? And he he said, ah, oh, you know, I wowed them. I was on fire. I, you know, as as James O'Rourke would say. But um. Uh, it seemed like that's where he got this this gift to talk to like audiences. Yeah. I don't know. I think he's a natural at it, but you know. No, I, I love him to death, but he kind of freaks me out. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, he he yeah. I just wonder what's behind there because yeah. every you, but uh, it might be a symptom of um of doing lots of interviews. You know, you, there's yeah. only so many. Even now, I'm talking to you. I've said the same thing to other people, uh, once or twice. Once. Not, you're not, cheating on me now. Not, not many, not many times, Tony. But you know, but um, I, the only other guy that I've seen was Michael Connolly, and I probably wouldn't have gone to see him except my wife got me tickets to go see him at a yeah. writers' festival. 
And he seemed just so disengaged. It was literally like, turn the radio on and here it comes. And, you know, and the dude's a super smart guy and I've read a lot of his books, even though I, I don't believe he's the bard of New uh, LA, you know, but... Um, uh, that goes to me. Uh, no, I'm me. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, he's a fantastic, you know, detective writer. But, um, yeah, and I, I was just struck by this guy must do 40, 50 interviews a year, right. you know, and, and, and probably gets pretty tired of it. Yeah. And the only way you can do it is, like, you've got your script, you know. Yeah, unless the interview kind of unless the interviewer kind of engages you in some weird way. That's that. Well, that's what's happening here, right? With you and me. Oh, oh I hope so. Yeah. We have our pants yeah. off because because a lot of the questions are probably the same, and that, that probably gets so annoying. It's like, why didn't you ask me if I was abused as a kid or something like that? You know? Oh well, no, because your your audience won't want to hear that. You know, like I wasn't, by the way. I don't think I don't think Michael Connolly was either. But I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Was your wife abused as a kid? Because she's here. <laughs> well, she's pretty weird. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't earned enough money to get the enough psychoanalysis to like unearth that. Yeah. You know. uh, Elizabeth, were you, were you abused as a kid? Ah, uh, no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. But actually, I would like to take back some of my comments earlier, <laughs> only because. Wait, 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 wait. This is going to be uh, Elizabeth taking back her comments, uh, part two. Okay. That's right, because we're staying, where we are now is beautiful. And, you know, we've passed through some gorgeous areas and suburbs yeah. and stuff, and I just thought, oh, wow, this is, this is really they're nice. Yeah, yeah they're beautiful so parts of LA. My yeah. comment that LA was a shithole is, you know, probably not fair. It's just predicated on the uh, North Fairfax um, oh, yeah. Talking to my new friend that I met over here, she told me that actually where we're staying isn't a bad neighbourhood. It's, it's not. just gritty. Yeah. So I need to reframe my thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Because I mean, there's a lot of really designed-up shops on um, Melrose and North Fairfax. It's just that the street is very dirty and a little yeah. confrontational for us, you know, down-home Australians. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, the thing about LA is it's. Because I had I came because I came down here from San Francisco and San Franciscans have very um, limited view of L.A. and I even did, where you think it's Santa Monica Promenade and Disneyland and that's all you know. Oh, and yeah. then, so when I came down here, I'm like I'm going to approach it like I'm traveling Europe and I'm going to find out the cool stuff, and it, you, the stuff you find in like weird strip malls, you'll see uh, Maria Bamford's doing an hour minute set, a uh, stand-up comedian for free wow. just because she's working on material at four o'clock do you want to join us and that's kind of the wow. weird the cool la where everything is right underneath it if you but you almost have to keep an eye out it's and then if otherwise it all looks like strip malls and then all of a sudden you're like i'm in the coolest place in my life yeah, <laughs> yeah. and i can see how that happens you know because i mean where we're sitting now is really beautiful yeah of course and um, yeah, you got stuff like the blacklist readings. I don't know what you think about them, or if you know about them even. I don't even know how much they cost. But what is it? oh, oh, the blacklist was um, Sky. <clears throat> uh, it would take all the screenplays that didn't get oh, picked yeah. up, right? Yeah, how fun is that? And and send out the list every to all the agents and all uh, that in um, Hollywood every year. And then they they became this massive website thing happening. And and. But what I was I was hoping to be able to go to one here was when they have readings. So, yeah. I mean, it's all monetized. I mean, it's not altruistic. It's a fucking money-making machine. Right. Um, but uh, 
so everybody who's got their script on the website, you know, you pay to get it on the website, and somebody might see you wear the script on the website. Oh, those. But yeah. but and you and there's some sort of self-rating, self-reviewing oh, thing. Okay, so that's that's right. Yeah. Last one and, was Rachel <coughs> McAdams, and I love Rachel McAdams. Right. What I, the reason I mentioned it was because they have these readings every month, and they will the best script that they picked out of the millions that probably get put on the site every month um, um, gets a bunch of pretty decent actors to sit in the theatre and do it, and you can go to it. You know, I think you have to buy a ticket, but it still seems like a cool thing to do. Yeah, no, the read the readings, the, just the weird stuff that happens around town. The yeah. small the small theaters. I've been to some small, really small plays, and I'm like, oh my god, I love that guy in Homeland. You're just sitting there going, I didn't know he was in the cast. It's, but it's because those are the people that are acting from their heart. They're not acting yeah. to have the fame and the money. They're acting because they have to. Kind of yeah. like the writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing it to, yeah. for the work. Yeah, for the acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to take back, uh, <laughs> uh, Elizabeth? No, I don't think I'd like to take anything back. Marriage to Matthew Stoko. Um, <laughs> you guys have you've had a you've had a twenty years, twenty year twenty one years. How does a how do you keep a marriage together twenty one years, Elizabeth? Laughter. No, I was just making a joke. <laughs> now you have to say it. She no, I said plenty of infidelity. That, that's not true at all. That's that's absolutely not true. No, I, I guess we're just very close. We, yeah, we're, and we laugh a lot every day. Yeah. Every day. He cracks me up, you know, We and we really do laugh. It's not just, you know, oh, yes, that's, he's trying to be funny. I mean, I'm double over, yeah. you know, cracking up in the kitchen, you know. And we cook together, you know. Oh, that's good. And um, we make dinner times quite special, you know, so the candles lit, we always put some music oh. on. Um, we'll always set the table. You know, this is the romantic world of Matthew Stokoe. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's a fairy tale. We, we do make an effort to, you know, do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, have a nice dinner together and have candles and nice lighting and, yeah. you know, make something special together on a weekend that we've never made before. It's fun. And just to have somebody who listens to you, I, I, I'm talking away and she's listening. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> something wrong with you? But it's great. <laughs> now... What now? When you guys first got together, what was the first time? Where, where did you travel? What was your first travel experience together? Where you were together, almost too much, where you probably wanted to kill kill each other? Hawaii. Was it? It was Hawaii. Hawaii. It was my 50th birthday. Okay. And um, we were actually going to go to Tasmania of all places, yeah. and um, which is beautiful, and I had wanted to go. But then they had a sale on to Hawaii, and I said to Matthew, I said, "Let's go to Hawaii," and he went, "Oh, uh, okay." What? But this was years after we got together, not when we were first together. This place was our first. It was our my. It was my first big holiday. I'm I'm calling cut. This has just become a domestic, a domestic well, diatribe now. So it was three years ago. Oh, that's in the first, that's in the first problem. But the first, but no, but you, you asked when we first went, where we were together. For we a didn't time. travel for a long, for a long time. Oh, okay. Basically, what happened is um, I met Elizabeth in Australia, and but she was um, based in New Zealand by an ex-marriage and children from that. Oh, so, okay. so I guess the travelling that we did was me going to New Zealand to spend time oh, time over yeah. there. So we never yeah. kind of had a holiday, big holiday together. So the Hawaii one was your first one. Yeah, no, we went to Denver oh, before we to, that. We so, so Hawaii, so Hawaii was for me. It was a strength. Not. 
No, it wasn't no, a strain at all. It was amazing. Oh, your question, no, your question the relationship. Oh. I guess it was a, a stra <laughs> when we first got together, when we first got together, Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, when we first got together, we were living in Queensland in Australia, and neither of us had work. Oh, that's right. Neither that's of us had, neither of us had jobs. Yeah. And um, and I was away from my children, yeah. um, and so that was a, a bit of a strain. But it was like a honeymoon period as well, right, right. you know. But there was also it wasn't real. It wasn't reality because right, right. we weren't going to work and it was a great time. Was life and. Um, yeah, we would house at all these great houses and, um, you know, like with swimming pools and we'd have to look after their dogs that used to, you know, shit on the floor and we'd have to clean it up and, and oh, what did we do? We ran over all their plants by accident and we had to run out and buy more plants and plant them before they came home. Yeah. But it was great, you know, it was yeah. a year where, a year of kind of this sort of lotus eating kind of thing where you just, um, we just, I just wrote. We just drove around gravy highways at night time, got mm. food stamps even, you know, yeah, and because because so at the time I wasn't allowed to work in Australia. I'd lost oh, my okay. residency. And I wasn't working <clears throat> and we were really broke. Yeah. And um, and looking back, it's probably one of the most fun you had. You had. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. 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 There's no question about that. Matthew Stokey, say thank you to Stoko. Thank you so much for being on Drinks with Tony. Hey, man, enjoyed every minute of it, and so cool to meet you after yeah. all this time. Yeah. Matthew Stoko on Drinks with Tony. Hope you enjoyed that episode that we taped uh, last week in Larchmont Village. And uh, warning to authors, if you bring your wife to the interview, uh, she may get more time. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm sure, I'm sure who I'm booking is not listening, so please bring your wives to the interviews because that's interesting stuff. All right, and up next is an interview from over about a decade ago. I had Steve Allman on my radio show at Pirate Cat Radio in San Francisco, and this was about 2008. So stay tuned, enjoy, and I'll see you next week. Our guest is David Uland. Uland. I mispronounce it during the show, too. Okay. Thank you for listening, and enjoy this uh, s segment from the archives. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. As a writer, you're always trying to balance these two forces that impinge on you. One is total self-loathing. Everything I do is shit. Why am I bothering? My family's just going to hate me. I don't have a business card. How am I going to get health care? And then... If that is too powerful, it shuts you down into writer's block. And then there's this other voice that's like, I am anointed by God. I'm the Messiah. Everything I say is electric. I shit roses. I've got to write it all down now. The world needs to hear my stories. And the fact of the matter is that the truth is obviously like somewhere in between and that writing successfully is balancing that self-loathing so that shuts you down with that self-loving that causes you to kind of masturbate onto the page. And so for me, I was always determined to just I was like stubborn I'm gonna I'm gonna learn how to do this I'm gonna learn how to do this and I needed to have the confidence that even if that story wasn't great or worth publishing that the larger endeavor I was up against I could learn how to do this better um, so I would say that I took every rejection like every writer does it hurt my feelings it bugged me but it also there was another part of me that was just made me stubborn. It made me say, okay, I'm, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get so good you can't say no. Hey, this is Steve Allman. I'm the author of the new essay collection, Not That You Asked. It's dirtier than your mother. Hey, and you're also listening to Drinks with Tony. Man, you nail it when it comes to comedy writing. What, 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 uh, 
Oh. <laughs> I better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, what suggestions do you have for people who like want to want to write comedy or, or 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 is there a formula? No, I mean, I, you mainly just don't try to be funny. That's the death. Like ah, you know, it's like the equivalent of walking on stage and saying ah, just flowing from Cleveland. My arms are killing me. You know, you just the audience. If you are trying too hard to be funny, are just going to see you up there trying to be funny. I don't. I don't set out to write funny things. I set out to, at least in this book of essays, to write about stuff that happened to me. And much of this stuff is so horribly embarrassing, it's mortifying, that the only way to deal with it, really, to kind of detox it, is to recognize how absurdly funny it is that I fucking, you know, my mother found a used condom of mine, you know, that the dog was playing with, and I immediately fantasized about the condom breaking and the semen all over, spattling, spattering my mother's face. Like, well, how do you deal with that? How do you? The only way you can... If you don't want to just slice your wrist, is to be like, yeah, that's actually kind of sick and funny. Twenty years down the line, so it's much more an effort to kind of rescue myself from particularly mortifying memories, um, and that's you know that's why I like Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor, or, you know, any of the comics I like, Chris Rock, even those guys are dead serious. Kurt Vonnegut, those guys are dead serious in what they're talking about, but they are able to mask their outrage and grief and all the negative emotions in you know in comedy they're able to sort of find the absurd comic impulses or within generally horrifying human stuff so that's all i'm trying to do people like students will say to me well i didn't want to make it all serious because it won't be funny and i'm like dude that's just exactly wrong you have to you have to get into the dark stuff that's what makes that's actually what creates the humor it doesn't destroy it it creates it you idiot you know if you're trying to be like oh, yeah all antic it's like that's not funny what's funny is like people recognize truth that they're getting more quickly than they're ready for and that's what you're trying to do it's like for me to recognize like why am i fantasizing about bukkakiing my mother like that it, that's a little bit more truth than I wanted and probably than the reader wanted a little bit more quickly but sometimes that's funny either that or it's sick you know yeah yeah so. did you um does your mother read your work or does she um or do you pick and choose for her yeah she she is in fact bukkakied by my work no she's um yeah you know she does but there's nothing she's there's nothing I've written that she doesn't know she's a psychoanalyst so it's not like I'm filling her in on some dark stuff that you know oh well jeez my son was a crazy horny lonely adolescent who had dark thoughts like what a shock so in in that sense I'm maybe the opposite of a lot of writers where their parents are absolutely mortified and they as writers have to fight through that resistance of like what would my parents think oh my god I'm going to hurt their feelings or freak them out or freak myself out by by imagining them reading I don't have that barrier. Um, there's stuff I'm frightened to write about and stuff that makes me uncomfortable, but it's certainly not that we're all crazy, horny nutbags. Right, right, like, right. that to me is just like, yep, that's just where we start from. So, yeah, so she does read my stuff, and mostly she read it and just be like, yeah, well, she doesn't have a choice. But, uh, you know, she... What she reacts to is when when I express that I'm sad in a piece of work. That's all she cares about. She's a mom, so she'll just say, she'll read like My Life in Heavy Metal's book of stories. It's you know most people would be like, gee, you know, female ejaculation and all this betrayal and so forth, and and heavy metal, all the other stuff that's in there that superficially people try to pick up on. And she just will like go straight to the heart and just go, 
man, that sounds like you had to say some sad times. And be like, yeah, mom, they're just fiction, but bullshit. Of course, I had some sad times. That's why I wrote the book. You know? Right, right. So. And then um, sometimes there's more truth to fiction than there is to nonfiction, I think. And Yeah, well, I mean, the whole key of fiction is you, you choose just the stuff that's going to get you to the most emotional danger the quickest. That's the bottom line. And, for instance, like a story like My Life in Heavy Metal, you know, I was a rock critic in El Paso, and I did, you know treat myself and the women in my life like crap but never in as, in as precisely awful a way as I am able to craft in that story because I'm able to take the core experiences that I had being a lonely self-destructive narcissistic schmuck dude 20s dude and bring it to its logical extreme of you are going to betray somebody so badly that they'll never forgive you and you lose them forever you asshole and you will pay for that you know that's what I was trying to get to and I sort of got there in in my life in a certain way but I never really had the horrifying confrontation at the end you know that, that's in the story so you know that that's that's what fiction does you're able to cherry pick and you're able to choose just those elements that are going to put the characters in the maximum amount of danger and if you're doing it right you're going to do that and see them through that you're listening to Pirate Cat Radio and Drinks with Tony my guest this hour is Steve Allman we'll be right back with him Powercat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, 104.8 FM, Berlin, PowerCatRadio.com. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. Our guest is Steve Allman. His book is Not That You Asked, Rants, Exploits, and Obsessions. Here's segment two of my interview with him. You know. Um, oh, and then what's, what's up with the Steve Allman haters? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a growing, it's a growing community uh, out on the Internet. I'm actually the second, Steve Allman hating is second only to porn yeah, on the internet. Yeah, it's like it's the, one of the growth industries. Yeah, what's up with it? Um, what's up with it, I think, is that the internet, like any medium, has uh, lots of people who are interested in art and being a part of the critical culture and talking about books and the ideas and emotions inside them. And then it's also full of people who are... Um, you know, kind of frustrated with their lives and unhappy with what they're doing and the way that they probably, you know, not probably, they have aspirations to write and they have a fantasy that somebody like me is like walking through life. I walk down the street and people throw money at me and, you know, I, I, I dash something off and write it and, you know, it's picked up by some magazine and wow, what a great life Steve Allman must have, um, which is kind of sad because, in fact, I've never had uh, any story in, in any of the big magazines. I'm like a complete sort of small press dude who just like published, like wrote hundreds and hundreds of short stories, most of which were never accepted anywhere. The ones that were were after 50 rejections, and I just built a thick shell of like, I'm just rejection proof, like go ahead. I mean, it knocks me a little bit, but basically I'm like, all right, I'm just going to try somewhere else. So I think there's a perception... Um, at least amongst some folks, uh, you know, that that I'm somebody who has stuff that they don't want. That, that I'm somebody who has stuff that they want. Like, I want to be that successful. And to me, I always feel like, are you kidding me? You know, I publish books that about 5,000 people read, and I'm really grateful for those 5,000 people, but that's it. I am as well known as the person in the background of a UPN show who's seen for a flickering second or two as an extra, and that show was canceled after six episodes. That's how famous I am, you know? <laughs> Nobody recognizes me on the street. I struggle to make money for my family, and, uh, and I'm trying, I hope, anyway, to write stories that have a certain kind of um, 
they're emotionally, they're emotionally insistent and they are moralizing. And I think that drives folks a certain kind of person crazy because when you are in the posture of being aggrieved and being pissed off at what somebody else has, the last thing you want is for them to be telling you how you should be living your life and that you shouldn't feel aggrieved or upset and that you should be more generous and, you know, be more pure of heart. Um, so, you know, I'll take that, whatever. I put my stuff out there and it means some people like you read it and laugh at it and receive it deeply and maybe even tell people about the book and that's a beautiful, great part of writing and putting books in the world. And the underside of it is that, that people who are angry with themselves or frustrated will just decide that you're an asshole and they don't like you. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about people hating my books. That's not what it's about. They hate me. They hate their idea of who I am. They really hate, they really hate who they are, but I represent something that they think they want or some fantasy of uh, what it means to be a successful working writer. And the sad thing is, and as you know from the essay I wrote about my, my blog hater, um, you know, in the end, there are so many people who um, I feel like I look at and envy and like, I want to be George Saunders. I want to be Jim Shepard. I want to be Dennis Johnson. I want to be Toni Morrison, Jane Austen, whoever, the people who I consider to be, you know, great writers who are unassailably awesome and they're my heroes. And I am look at my own work and think, what a what shit. When are you going to get real and do something for real? So, in other words, you never reach a point where you're like, well, now I've made it and I'm, you know, I don't have to worry anymore. You always worry about whether you're doing good work and whether people are picking up what you're putting down. Um, that doesn't go away just because you put a book in the world, it gets worse, actually. And I mean, the best thing that could happen to all these haters is for them to try to put a book in the world and see what it's like. Right. Go ahead. You try that in our fucking YouTube internet bullshit culture. Now see how you feel about all the internet haters who start talking shit. Not about your book, because they have the right to do that. If somebody wants to come after my short stories or my essays, come after my work, bring it. Because you know what? At least you have the respect to talk about my work, not some People Magazine bullshit version of who I am. Fuck me. Fuck my author. Fuck the rest of that shit. Talk about my work. Um, So, you know whatever you put it out there and that's one of the risks you run but it also doesn't mean that i have to sit there like a little mouse and go oh yeah there are all these angry hateful people but i'm gonna rise above it fuck you you talk shit about me i'm gonna fucking talk shit about you right back and i'm gonna tell you what a little scaredy cat piece of shit you are bottom line you got a problem with that let's fucking go in public and talk about art and what you're doing with your life and what i'm doing with my life got it and that applies to you know i mean i don't I don't pick a fight with everybody who, you know, you got to be something of a persistent asshole to get on my radar. But once you do, it's like, come on, dude, you little fucking piece of shit, chicken shit writing in your little screen and surfing, you know, surfing your porn. Like, come on, pal. I'm a writer. You want to fucking do the dance? Let's do the dance. You're a tough guy. You want to criticize my work? Let's talk about it. You want to criticize me? I'm going to tell you you're being an asshole. Right. So. Um, and some of it's, you know, Bad publicity is also good publicity too. When you're, when you're, you know, when 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 there are haters out there, you're like, why is this guy hated so much? I'm buying that book. No. <laughs> well, maybe, but I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want people to buy my books because they heard from some idiot on the internet that I was an asshole. Uh, I would like it if they. I would like it if 
they said, I hate this book, and here's why. Because the way Steve Allman writes, dot, dot, dot. And here's an example of that, and here's another example. I review books, so I'm not just saying, rah, rah, rah. Like, I don't criticize authors. I criticize books. And if... You know, if, if their books aren't that good, like I just reviewed Nick Hornby's new book, and it was a young adult book. I read Fever Pitch, his memoir. I thought it was one of the greatest books I'd ever read. And I read this book and uh, the new book, and I just thought it just well, didn't ring true. And I, I lined it up against the brilliance of his early book, and I slammed it pretty hard. But that's nothing against Nick Hornby. That's just the book, the latest book that he wrote. And it's nothing about Nick. If anything, I was saying to Nick Hornby, I know you're a better writer than this book because I've read this previous book and I've read it twice and it's part of what turned me into a writer. Honor that, you know, and that's, I think that's fair to do. If somebody wants to criticize my work and say, you know what, you're squandering the gifts that you have, honor it, you know. Yeah. I'll be like, oh, shit, that hurt to hear, but it might make me a better writer. Yeah. If somebody just says, you're an asshole and blah, 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 that doesn't help me become a better writer. You know, it just tells me that somebody doesn't like themselves. Newsflash, you know. Pirate Cat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, 104.8 FM, Berlin, PirateCatRadio.com. If you ever wanted to be um, a radio host, now is your chance. We're actively recruiting for a couple of our radio slots. Go to PirateCatRadio.com for more information and fill out an application. Um, And that is PirateCatRadio.com if you're interested in becoming a staff member or PirateCat DJ since we are a community radio station. My guest this hour is Steve Allman. He's the author of Not That You Asked, Rants, Exploits, and Obsessions. He's also the author of the number, uh, New York Times bestseller, Candy Freak. Here's segment three of my interview with him. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio and Drinks with Tony. So, so um, the, the blogger that's mentioned in the book, um, have you had contact with him since? Any contact or is it still the same? Uh... Well, he sent an email to me, to not, a, not to an email, not to my main email address, but another email address. I'm not very hard to reach, so he, he kind of sort of snuck it in a back, back door, so to speak. Um, and I think he was trying to be gracious about it. Uh, but actually, you know, he, the guy, here's my interpretation. I'm sure he would never admit this. He knew that some of what I was writing was true. And he knew that there's a battle inside of him, a serious writer and a lover of art and an envious, uh, you know, needy guy who wanted attention and was trying to find a shortcut to it. And I think that he's realized, hey, I should be trying to take my work more seriously. And he did. And he wrote a book and it's going to come out in the world. And I say, hey, dude, welcome to the world of being a real writer. Good for you. Good on you. Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of uh, uh, hatred or loathing for the guy. That's why I wrote the piece to get it out, to get to the point where I'm like, you know what? I, I forgive you because I am you. And it is funny. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my editor was like, well, gee, you know, should you just really be in the book? I mean, you know, it's kind of meta. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You ever been like internet bitch slapped over and over and then like try to confront the guy and had him duck out on you? You know, in person only to be live logging about you at some keyboard while you're standing over him trying to shake his hand and like get him to realize you're a real person. It's crazy. Like that's you couldn't make that up. So uh, I'm glad it it wound up in the book. In the end, it was the the whole thing. I mean, I came back from that weekend where this guy would not introduce himself to me. And I just was like. I'm not going to stop thinking about this until I write about it. It's too crazy. And, like, this guy just behaved too much like a little pathetic chicken shit. I've got to out him. You you can get away with long-distance stuff, but when somebody's right in front of you, like, hey, dude, I'm a real person, not like some little cyber character. 
here I am, big yeah. boy. You've been waiting for this moment. What do you got? And he's like ducks away like a fucking chicken shit. So at any rate. Um, now you've uh, in your in your books you've you've uh, written novels you've written nonfiction. Um, wait, how, what was I? I don't know what your first book was, but how did you get started? What? Um... Well, the first book was My Life in Heavy Metal, which is a okay. book of short stories, and then I um, I tried to write a novel, failed spectacularly, fell into a depression, started eating lots of candy and going crazy thinking about it and talking about it all the time, and that led to this strange nonfiction book about candy, candy freak. And then, because that did okay, I basically said, well, I just want to publish another book of short stories. And so they, like, let me sneak more, one more book of short stories in the world uh, before they caught me by the short hairs and said, write a novel. Um, and then I wrote this, this book of essays. So it's really been, like, I, don't, I haven't done a lot of planning in my career. It's not like I've thought, okay, now I'm going to do X. I've really, this book, the, Not That You Asked, started as, uh, was wanted to write about Vonnegut. And the publisher basically said, well, we like the Vonnegut piece, but we don't want it to be a whole book. Why don't you give us a book of essays? And I was like, uh, all right, that would be great. You know, I like writing essays anyway. I'd written a ton. So I don't really, I haven't planned it too well. Um, you know, people sometimes think, oh, pretty clever. You know, Almond wrote about candy. You know, what a, what a clever thing to do. And it's like, dude, I fell into a depression. I'd written an 850-page novel that sucked a big dick. I didn't know what to do. And um, I couldn't, nobody wanted any more short stories. There's a difference between career planning and just like, what do I think I can do actually? Like, what do I think I can actually write feeling as crappy about myself as I do? Um, And sometimes that's how it works. Sometimes you're feeling good and you're able to summon all your creative powers. And other times you're just just trying to write what you can write. You know, keep yourself at the keyboard. Um, and I think you always have a feeling of, I always have a feeling of in, inside feeling like a failure until I write a novel on my own that uh, is, a, is, is successful artistically, not commercially, fuck that, but artistically, I'm going to feel like I haven't really lived up to my potential. That's what I mean by nobody feels like that. You always, even if you're perceived by others to be successful, that, you know, come on, you, you're measuring yourself, hopefully, against time, you know, and against consciousness and against the other great writers who have contributed to that, not, you know, ha- you know, am I going to sell some books? Am I going to become a star? Will I sell a movie script based on one of my fucking books? You know, that's, that's not, none of that is easy, but it's, it's easier than the deepest kind of artistic or emotional challenge that you can issue to yourself. Um, so in that sense, I think a, a good career kind of maps out areas that you're frightened things that you're frightened to do and that you you don't have to be successful but you at least have to face up to the challenge of trying to do them that novel that i wrote that was a big spectacular failure one of two actually i've tried to write that have sucked um actually more like three or four but the ones i got through there's two of them that those are a big disappointment to me and when i think about it i'm kind of ashamed and like oh you suck and what's wrong with you but actually those are probably the most successful things i've done in the sense that i stayed with them even when i was frightened of it and even when i knew it wasn't going well you know anybody can write well when it's going well and you know people are liking your stuff and reading it it's when you're when you really feel that you're failing and losing hope that it's tough to write so 
Steve Allman on Pirate Cat Radio. I want to let you know next week our guest will be Arthur Narcessian. He's the author of The Fuck Up as well as Suicide Casanova, but his latest book is called The Swing Voter of Staten Island. That is from Akashic Books, and we'll have him next week along with Arno Kor, who will be performing at Annie Social Club on November 16th. So stay tuned for that next Thursday afternoon. Here is segment four of my interview with Steve Almond. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio and Drinks with Tony. I think you should be um, as dark and lonely and miserable as you can be in your work, uh, right? That's where it needs to come out. But I don't think you should walk around with a black cloud over your head and be you know, sad and depressed and mean to the people around you or negative, like, fuck that. There's enough of that. But you do in your work need to um, provide a space where you can tell the rock bottom truth about how sad you are or frightened or angry. And people appreciate that because everybody walks around basically feeling frightened and ashamed and lonely and all that stuff. And they might cure it for a little while on the Internet. They might cure it for a little while at TV and buying new shoes or whatever bullshit late model capitalism throws at you. But it's not gonna, that's not going to cure you for long. But literature will. You know, That's why people still read. They need those stories and they need to know that somebody else has been there and it was just as bad. You know? Like, I hope Not That You Asked is a joyful book. Like, I want it to seem joyful because yeah. in a certain way, I might have a horrible, humiliating adolescence and I might have, you know, struggles artistically and, and feel like shit a lot of the time and go through some dark stuff and feel like the culture and, and, as a whole is, is headed in the wrong direction and be heartbroken just like Kurt Vonnegut. But in the end, I'm really optimistic and hopeful. And I love my daughter and wife, and I'm very happy that I finally got my act together at age 40 enough to, like, find uh, a good, patient woman to put up with my shit. And that's, if you know what I mean, I want to be like Vonnegut in the sense that I want to be able to be honest about how worried I am about the species, but I want to keep trying to get us to act better and appeal to people's basic decency because i think americans are a lot better than their behavior you know their values are a lot better than their behaviors and they just don't have a civic culture and an artistic culture and a political culture and a religious culture that is holding them to those values and saying okay you believe in generosity you you believe all that stuff christ was saying on the on the mount um okay great then stop complaining when people take your taxes to uh, refurbish urban schools shut the fuck up and stop okay and also you know jesus was hanging out with the outcasts okay people who are diseased and poor and um you know leprous and hated by other people okay so stop bullying gay people and stop bullying immigrants and stop you know there's this is what writers are supposed to be doing john steinbeck wrote the great american novel which was the grapes of wrath which essentially said why do people need tons of land why are we so mean to people who are just in need um and that's essentially what all my books are asking. This this new one, much more so. I think that's a lot of the reason that the, the haters hate me, because I'm a moralizing person, and I do say we can behave better and we should behave better, and that's kind of unfashionable. As a writer, you're just supposed to explore individual consciousness and not worry about society at large, you know? But the truth of the matter is, like, I love the fact that, that Dave Eggers, you know, 
has 826 Valencias. I love the fact that he wrote a book that was, you know, from the point of view of a Sudanese lost boy. I love that he used his cultural fame or, you know, significance to to take his readers into a world where they had to acknowledge, gee, most of the world really has a crazy, crazy hard time of it. We're awfully lucky here. Maybe this infers some moral responsibility for us to be better for us to be less greedy, more giving, more compassionate, more intolerant of suffering of, of any sort. So, the um the Vonnegut quote in the beginning. I mean, that's just I read that and I was like, okay, I'm gonna like this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And Lot's wife, of course, was told not to look back where all those people in their homes had been, but she did look back, and I love her for that because it was so human. It's like, man, that's Vonnegut in a nutshell, you know? I mean, I love her for that. Sorry if that seems sentimental, you a-holes, you know, but that's what it's like. I only say that because somebody else pointed out to me, a young writer. Um, I mean, one of the things that the new book is about is, uh, so I'll set this up and then I'll I'll just read a little bit. So, like, part of what the book is about, for me, it's about writing and becoming a writer, an artist of any sort. That is that you know, you always go through a, an arc of learning, and you're, it's never smooth. You always write bad stuff or, you know, create bad art, unless you luck out. And let's not talk about that, because there's very few people who do. You stumble around and struggle and write bad stuff, and you're insecure and self-doubting, and it comes out in the work. And it was great for me to go see Kurt Vonnegut's papers and recognize Kurt Vonnegut, the guy who I think of as the gold standard of narrative assurance, that booming, benevolent God voice that he had, where he knew everything that was going on in every novel, uh, that he wrote horrible early stories. Not horrible, like morally horrible. They just were like they weren't very good. They were false. And um, so in, in looking at his papers, it got me thinking a lot about my own early writing and what it's like to be a young writer and think about trying to succeed in the way you, you sort of fool yourself. So here's just a paragraph that speaks to that a little bit. I'll read from Vonnegut is on record as saying that the reason he writes is so he can edit himself into something approaching charm. I realize that may, it may, I realize that it may come off as a bit of dirty pool to go mucking through his initial efforts, particularly because it gave me an almost obscene pleasure to see Kurt Vonnegut writing so badly. Or maybe I mean it gave me a twisted sort of faith. I mentioned above that I don't believe in talent, and what I meant by this is that a knack for the language, the stuff identified early on by well-meaning high school teachers, is about as useful a predictor of literary success as shoe size. When students march into one of my undergrad workshops with talent, I regard them as doomed. They are likely to suffer the illusion that writing is about applause rather than humiliation. You know, and I mean, that's that's what it comes down to is like if you think and I, I see these kids you know, they kind of come marching in like some teacher has said oh you're such a brilliant writer you've got so much talent and they're like they, you know, they turn in their piece and expect that the class is just going to go that was great you know, and they think that's what writing is about and it's like dude you've got you're going to have the people who get good are the ones who are able to withstand the rejection and humiliation that comes with getting good at any craft the ones who are going to be able to um, take it when the world says, what is this crap? You thought this was good? What, because your high school English teacher told you that was a beautiful metaphor? This is, you know, the the ones who really develop that thick skin or that sense of self-forgiveness where they keep battling away even though they know it isn't great yet or maybe not even good yet. And that's, um, 
you know, that's why I didn't start writing until I was in my early 30s, because basically I didn't have the confidence or sense of internal fortitude to, like, take it. I wouldn't even admit that I would try such a romantic, faggy thing as writing a short story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that you started in that... Well, I started in my, I want to say, maybe late 20s, and then I went to grad school. I, you know, basically, in my early 30s, I started writing fiction seriously and just you know, slugged away at it for four or five years before I would say I started writing any stories that were any good. Yeah, a few got published, but the ones that I really feel like, yeah, those are getting, some, some, those are getting to something real emotionally. They're not just a safe enough use of the language that they could get published somewhere a little. They're really important. They're emotionally dangerous. That took... Yeah, it took five or six years of just writing stuff that just wasn't there. When you, when you would get rejections and collect rejections, was there um, where was the point where you knew yourself that it was the that it was good work and that to just keep plugging away because it was uh, personal opinion of editors? Or? Well, it's a great question because you're always trying to balance as a as a writer you're always trying to balance these two forces that impinge on you one is total self-loathing everything I do is shit why am I bothering my family's just going to hate me I don't have a business card how am I going to get health care and then if that is too powerful it shuts you down into writer's block and then there's this other voice that's like I am anointed by God I'm the Messiah everything I say is electric I shit roses I've got to write it all down now the world needs to hear my stories and the fact of the matter is that the truth is obviously like somewhere in between and that writing successfully is balancing that self-loathing that shuts you down with that self-loving that causes you to kind of masturbate onto the page and so for me I was always Determined to just, I was like stubborn. I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn how to do this. I'm gonna learn how to do this, and I needed to have the confidence that even if that story wasn't great or worth publishing, that the larger endeavor I was up against, I could learn how to do this better. Um, so I would say that I took every rejection like every writer does. It hurt my feelings and bugged me, but it also there was another part of me that was just made me stubborn. It made me say, okay, I'm not, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get so good. You can't say no. That's basically the whole thing. I'm going to get so good. You can't say no. But for that matter, I still say that to myself. I say, I've got to write a novel. That's so good. They can't say no, or I've got to, you know, I've got to write another story. That's so good that the New Yorker can't say no. You know, you always find those places where you haven't been able to get through and hopefully, you know, without making yourself miserable, you say, I want to, do something so good that they have to say yes. So, You're listening to Drinks with Tony. Steve Allman, big thanks to him for uh, giving me the time to interview him and pick his brain about writing. His new book is called Not That You Asked, Rants, Exploits, and Obsessions. It's available at bookstores and online now. Uh, 